Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 249 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Robert Coote episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that Robert Coote, an actor known for such roles as Timmy Rogues and uh, Theodore Nero Wolf, born in London, England, well, he has a birthday of February 4th. 1909. That's right, folks. Two, four, nine. And with that very, very loose fit, 249 imagery this week, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. So, this coot guy, is he known for anything in particular? Well, apparently he's known for his role of, uh, you know, Timmy Rogues and Theodore Nero Wolf. Tell me more about these uh, Timmy Rogues and Theodore Nero Wolfs. Well, Nero Wolf is a famous Agatha Christie guy. Did you automatically think I am a big Agatha... See, really, I think the only Agatha Agatha Christie character I am familiar with, I cannot pronounce his name correctly. Hercule Hercule Poirot? Yeah, but I've heard his name pronounced, like, at least three different ways. I've heard Pierrot. Or... Hercule Poirot. The, the H is kind of, you know, eh. Hercule Poirot. 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 Hercule Poirot. <laughs> See, there's a reason why I have yet to visit France. Because I might mm. offend a lot of people. I don't know. I just go in, guns ablaze, and tell them you're from Texas and get by on that. Like, literally show up with guns blazing, guns ablazing, with boots and spurs and a couple six Well, shooters. sure, because they'll at first want to go stupid American, right? You know, but then they'll see that you're from Texas. And I'm telling you, Texans get a bit of a pass for the stupid American bit because people are just so infatuated with what they think Texas is. And, and you don't even have to go abroad you can just go to a heavily metropolitan area in another part of the country and just tell them that you're from texas and they're like so does everybody drive a truck no no people have cars there's there's lots of cars in texas so is there like just are there just ranches like no matter where you go i'm like have you ever seen a picture like You've never watched some football or anything. I mean, surely you've seen or baseball or basketball. Uh, they take place in the cities, you know. Especially with Houston, because a lot of people don't realize that not only is Houston in the semi-tropics, in my mind it's considered the South, but it's also heavily wooded. There are a bunch of trees in Houston and, and in the Houston yes. area. And actually, my SO... She is from Sacramento, California, another heavily wooded city in the U.S. The first time I brought her into Texas via Bush Airport in Houston, well, actually, no, via Hobby Airport in Houston, we flew over. She had no idea where we were at. She thought we had a stop in some other city in some (laughs) other state because all she saw coming in were all these treetops, you know, these lush, green, beautiful treetops. And she was very, very confused. She thought we were going to land in a airfield, and she was expecting to see fucking the 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 shit blowing in the wind, the tumbleweed. She was oh, tumbleweed, tumbleweed, tumbleweeds, yeah, yeah. But no, she only saw maybe some cigarettes in a plastic cup. People are literally minds are blown when you tell people that a great deal of the Christmas trees that you buy at a tree lot come from uh, come from East Texas. They're like, wait, what? Yeah. Huge, huge pine forests in East Texas. It's ridiculous. So, yeah, fun fun times, fun times. Yeah. Now that uh, people have had a little bit of their ignorance cleared, how's life treating you? It's great. Here, at least in California, the Los Angeles area, it happens to kind of sort of feel like the fourth day of fall, whereas where you are at, in Houston, Texas, it does not yet quite feel like fall. Is that accurate to say? Are you kidding? You can't stop the fall. Everywhere you go is pumpkin spice fucking everything. Well, I'm talking about so, weather, weather, weather-wise. Oh, no, they they will 
the weather by proclaiming their love of pumpkin spice everything here. You know, um, it did, did it dip below 90? Quick, throw on the Han Solo outfits and let's go, ladies. It's ridiculous. What and kind I'm not of situations kidding. are you finding yourself in? If you can put on a, if anybody there can put on a Han Solo outfit and you can get ladies to follow you anywhere, no, 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 that's no, no. pretty oh, cool. That's, okay, think yeah. about, I want you to think about this. Anytime it gets cold outside and you see the, the young hip girls, okay, who are trendy and looking hot and going to their Starbucks or, you know, uh, they've, they've, done their yoga for the day yeah they're usually in they're yoga all, pants yeah that's well, accurate. but now they're all refreshed and and looking perky and wonderful because you know they've recovered from their yoga and they and they but they're out and when they're out and about what are they wearing they are wearing usually knee-high boots they're wearing leggings that go tuck in directly to the boots often with a stripe down the side and then they're wearing a, a close-fitting top and a uh, sweater vest or, or a, a sleeveless vest. And this is even when it is 88 degrees outside. Right. But but if you think about that, think about the visualization. And it's usually, you know, it's fall colors. So they're browns, blues, blacks, you know, uh, or, or, you know, those in those ranges of hues. And if you think about it, they look like fucking Han Solo. Because Han Solo wears the knee-high boots with the really tight pants that look like leggings tucked in with the red pinstripe down the side. Um, not quite pinstripe, but a red stripe down the side. And then he wears the nice flowing top with the vest. So you are saying that October, fall, is mm-hmm. the... Yes. It, it, that's like when the ultimate Han Solo cosplayers... Should come and out they don't and even go to Starbucks. Know yeah, these these women they don't even know it, but they just literally look like they're dressed like Han Solo, and they go for their pumpkin spice lattes. And all it takes is the mere mention of pumpkin spice, and somehow it got below ninety degrees. Um, I just am like, it's just still everything's fucking hot. Uh, it's just not quite as humid. That's that's where I stand. Well, I I went to the local Bevmo. Last night, and Bevmo is kind of like Specs, I guess, in the oh, in the Texas okay, Houston sure. area. So it's like your warehouse ish sure. of 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 alcohol, where they where they put cases of beer just on a pallet in the middle of of, of a hallway. <laughs> sure. Uh, the, the cool thing about Bevmo, short for beverages and more, is that every once in a while they have specials where you buy this bottle of wine and then you get a second bottle of the same wine for five cents. So I walked out spending less than a hundred bucks and got six bottles of pretty nice wine, Coppola's and all that stuff. And then I got three six packs of pretty decent and wonderful purchases of Oktoberfest beer and also a pumpkin beer, which I'm excited to uh, indulge myself in because I am a pumpkin beer fanatic i love it when it's good i love it uh well i do know i saw uh uh, total wine and more or at least their version of total wine and more up in canada is currently selling a uh 3600 case pack of budweiser beer (laughs) and it's literally all one cube of beer and they and they're marketing that as something you can buy so does it have something to do with like america like is it nope just was a big huge case of budweiser Uh, you know if you ever needed like a theoretical lifetime supply of budweiser there there you go they now offer it uh in a 3600 pack i i like how (laughs) that just rolled off your tongue like (laughs) like that was like the most casual sentence one could say a 3600 pack of budweiser truly this bud's for you Anyway, <laughs> or all the butt is for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, now now we're back in not 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 back, but now we're in marijuana, and that could be a whole different fun thing. <sighs> but I guess we should uh, drift drift on into the old sack. What do you think? Want to check the old mail sack? Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. <laughs> All right, and success yet again. 
Apparently, I may or may not have called someone to the floor last week for a throwdown about email. Um, and the old adage of be careful what you wish for has definitely rung very true for this co-host of the SLS cast. What does that mean, Matt? Well, that means you didn't listen last week, which, what the hell. But, I'll forgive you. Uh, to catch you up, Diana, our awesome, awesome, awesome supporter, who, who is really and truly the greatest emailer to the show, um, had praised Tim yet again for his insightful review of yet another film that we had watched. And I felt rather left hurt. out in the cold, you know. And yes, as Tim rightfully pointed out, the technical term is butthurt. And, Diana decided to favor me with a personal email, which is the following. Subject, Venom, upon request. Matt, 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 what a needy whiner you are. You are just jealous Tim is one-upping you with his more incisive analysis of the movies. Grow a pair and man up. You need to approach your reviews like your homework. Maybe then you'll get some serious meat in them instead of no-substance hot-air popcorn. There. Hope you enjoyed my trumped-up diatribe concocted for your pleasure. Hugs and kisses, Diana. <laughs> and honestly, I I am really super, super pleased that that came. I was kind of like, what the shit? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I did say I wanted some hate mail. And here's Diana listening to me and, you know, being super awesome and giving me some hate mail because I asked for it. So, yeah, and then, of course, I don't know. I think Tim's head is currently knocking against the wall because it's so big right now. But, you know, maybe he's like a bobblehead over there. Um, but she does throw a postscript. She says, P.S. Saw Wind River tonight and glad you two recommended it. A real gem. Stark and earthy like nothing else I've seen this year. Thanks again for bringing my attention to one I would have missed. So, you are absolutely welcome. Tim? Tim, be honest now. How how are you feeling? Are are, are we feeling nice and puffed up? Are we feeling you know? You are see, we feeling the Diana love? I, I yeah. I mean, I I feel you know. I, I when Diana does not send mail, I still feel her love, Matthew. Um, <laughs> but no, I I feel the same pretty much as I did uh, before you read the lovely email. I I feel a little bit bloaty from the meatloaf and the beer that I regretfully had. It, it made me. You see. The reason why I bought this particular beer was because I was told it was light. Upon drinking it, it w I realized it was not light. So it's bloaty, just bloaty, still bloaty, but <laughs> I enjoyed it. Thank you, Diana. Sometimes Matt just needs a little smat on the took a smat. He needs a smat. <laughs> Matt needs a smat on the tookus. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much again, Diane. I really appreciate it. Love having fun with you like that. If you would like to send us an email, we would love to hear from you too. Clearly... We want to hear from you no matter what. If you're having fun with us, if you're picking on us, if you've got something serious you want to say, um, we will be glad to read it on the air, as it were. Send us that email to the show at slscast.com. If you would like, you can also hit us up on Twitter. Follow us there at the SLScast. So now that we're all caught up on the business side, uh, do we want to go ahead and get right into the old movies? Because we, we're doing another copycat throwdown thing here. So in order to effectively do the copycat throwdown, we need to do the movie section first. So are we ready for the movie, sir? Let's dive in. All right, folks. Here we go. It's the movies. <laughs> And this week's movie is My Cousin Rachel, the 2017 version, of course, romantic drama film written and directed by Roger Mitchell, uh, based upon the 1951 novel of the same name by Daphne du Maurier. The headaches, the fever, the bitter potions. She has done for me at last, Rachel, my torment. I was an orphan. 
Ambrose took me in. He was my cousin, but I loved him like a father. He died of a tumor on the brain. Well, I don't believe that. You know perfectly well his wife drove him to his death. What are you going to do with her? Confront her. Won't you sit down for a moment? Very well, if you wish. Your cousin didn't trust anyone at the end. Doctors, servants, his own wife. It was his illness. How easy it must be for a woman like your cousin Rachel to twist you around her little finger. Drink. You know nothing about that. Or is it you who know nothing? Doing her little asking around. She's notorious for unbridled extravagance and a limitless appetite. You realize you could lose everything. I'm willing to take that risk. Where is she? The only thing that I lacked. Oh my god. Is you. I don't know what we're looking for anymore. Shouldn't we just keep looking, please? Soon none of this will seem quite so bad. Rachel, my torment. All right. This one, of course, stars Rachel Weiss, Sam Clayton, uh, Ian Glenn, and Holiday Granger, along with Pierre, Pierre Frances- Francesco, goodness gracious, Favino. And uh, what we have here is a young boy who is uh, orphaned, who goes by the name of Philip. He is adopted by his older cousin's name, Ambrose. Uh, Ambrose really takes care of him. But they've never really had a woman in the house um, as they grow up. Or as he's been raising Philip. Eventually, though, Ambrose needs to take a trip. He, so he heads off on down to Italy. Once he's down there, he starts writing back because, of course, pen pal thing and just kind of keeping your family informed. Um, whereupon all of a sudden, hang on. Ambrose is married. And then, uh, Ambrose starts to kind of go downhill. And now Philip is left to discern what the shit's going on with this, uh, with, with this chick that Ambrose hooked up with out in Italy. And then, uh, you know, more or less shenanigans ensue. So, um, I, I personally found that this movie, uh, is, um, I, I, okay. I, I don't want to, you know me, guys, I, I try to be spoiler free wherever I can. So the spoiler free version of this is, um, I think that the acting overall is very solid, and in terms of what the story in and of itself is trying to do, um, it works. The problem is is that the story itself is flawed, and while it is a stylized update and I think um, accomplishes its job, the story wasn't all, uh, wasn't all that great. Um, I do really like the performances here. I do really like the updates and I think that, um, Roger Mitchell, or I guess Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-L. So Michelle, Michelle, Mitchell, um, it, I mean, it was clear that he knew what he was doing. And I think that in terms of source material and what the story was, was about and trying to do, uh, he was extremely faithful to it. But for me, it, I, the story doesn't carry through all the way. Um, but it is a likable enough movie. So I do give this one 3.25 out of 5. Um, mainly on the strength of all of the technical components and of the acting. It's just the story, <sighs> the story just didn't do it for me. But that's not, that's not the fault of the movie. That's more the fault of the story. Perhaps tomorrow I could borrow a horse and have a look around. Such an odd feeling. Driving up to the house, he comes standing by the door to welcome me. I've done it so many times in my imagination. Clock struck the hour as we drove up. I 
even seem to recognize the sound of the bell. Really not. Uh, Will you please stop being so polite and get up and go to bed? Of course, of course. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What do you got there, Tim? So I thought My Cousin Rachel was a very interesting movie because I, I've known of the older flick. Upon rewatching the 1952 version, I realized that I've seen it before i was younger but i didn't really remember anything of it except uh richard burton's performance and then i also remembered that the story of it is just a really cool story i really liked how it's very gothic in nature and the entire tone of the movie is just very eerie and you you don't quite know what is going on and as a kid i also liked the whole the aesthetic the whole gothic aesthetic and so when I heard that My Cousin Rachel, they were doing a remake of it with Rachel Weisz, I was excited because I was very interested in seeing how this movie would translate. And so I looked up the director, and it's Roger Mitchell. And Roger Mitchell directed Notting Hill. He did Changing Lanes, the Ben Affleck, Samuel Jackson movie. He also did this really good character movie called Venus with Peter O'Toole, uh, which was pretty much the last really good film that Peter O'Toole was in before he he passed away. And I, he was nominated for that movie. I don't remember if it was for an Oscar or not, but I know he was nominated with for like a BAFTA and like a Golden Globe or something like that. So I knew this guy knew how to make, Roger Mitchell knew how to make good films, uh, especially interesting in-depth character pieces. So I went into My Cousin Rachel knowing that the film not only needed to have a very interesting aesthetic, capture a very interesting aesthetic, but I knew it also needed a really good actor to portray Philip, and it also needed a really good actor to portray Rachel. And in watching the movie, you definitely have the aesthetic. You definitely have really beautiful cinematography. And when it comes to Rachel Wise's performance of Rachel, she is pretty good. And the reason why it's so important, I think, that you need good actors performers is because with a story like this there's only so much a movie like this can rely on the aesthetics great attention is paid towards its beautiful dark imagery and the rich gothic appeal but it lacks the foundation from its director the movie itself just felt overproduced We've seen a number of Tim Burton and several of those BBC masterpiece costume dramas over the years to already be comfortable and very familiar with the look of movies like this. You know, there's nothing really new here, which is why, again, great character work and more than intriguing storytelling must be in the forefront. And so I already mentioned Rachel Wise. I think what she had to work with, she did a very nice job. Sam... Claflin, he was in one of the Hunger Games movies or a handful of the Hunger Games movies. I'm not too sure exactly what else he's been in. He played Philip. I thought he was unable to effectively handle Philip's emotional swing from being overly full of anger and hatred towards Rachel to being completely overwhelmed with blind love. And of course, I'm referring to the first 10 to 20 minutes of the movie when He's just over the top. Once he finds out his father, his uh, his godfather is dead. Not his godfather, but his stepfather is dead. And once he gets the idea that Rachel did this to him, that she is to blame, he is furious. Over the top furious. He overdoes it quite a bit. Sam Claflin does. And then all of a sudden, Rachel shows up. And within those initial moments of her showing up in the two of the meeting... He just falls for her. And you don't really see or experience that switch, that change. And for this movie to be effective, and for the ending to pay off, which I'm not going to spoil the ending, you really need that switch. You need to see why he switched. Because 
you're still trying to figure out who Rachel is and what she is up to. And I don't necessarily think this is Sam Claflin's fault or even Rachel Weisz's fault to an extent because this is up to the director. This was up to Roger Mitchell to provide the groundwork, to have the ending, the goal in mind, what he wanted the audience to get out of this film. And once he had that in mind, he was supposed to provide the detail and the groundwork and how he should shoot things and how he should direct. And it was up to him to get those specific performances, especially from Claflin. I'm trying really hard not to really go into too many spoilers, because if you haven't seen this movie, what we will more likely get into or most likely get into during the throwdown is all the is full on spoiler territory. So I think I'm going to end my review with just saying that what the movie builds up to doesn't quite make sense because the character of Rachel, what you are told about her or what you experience through Philip is that she is a duplicitous character. And as the movie goes, you start questioning that. And then the ending happens. And I'm not going to tell you what the setup is or anything, but you start questioning something else. But then once you start questioning something else, that just doesn't really make sense. Like, it contradicts itself. So the ending itself is not really left up to anybody's interpretation because we really have no clue what all of the contradictory evidence should be interpreted. And that definitely doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to end it there. (laughs) I'm going to say 3.25 out of 5 as well. I think it's worth checking out uh, if it's on TV, if you can get it for a a cheap rental, you know, $2.99, 3 bucks. If you're a fan of Rachel Weisz, I think it's worth checking out. If you're into these gothic romances that are shot with beautiful cinematography, very interestingly, do check it out. Technically, there's one other thing I want to mention technically is that the first five minutes is incredibly, ridiculously uh, rushed. And Roger Mitchell just overutilizes moving the camera. Every freaking scene for the first half of the movie, the camera is moving at every shot. And it's just a little too much. 3.25 out of 5 for me. Okay, well, so next week we're going to be switching back over to Errors of Continuity, and we're actually going to have a triple shot of that. So you're going to get uh, Errors of Continuity episodes 3, 4, and 5 over the next few weeks, uh, and that is going to be Tim, and we have a special guest joining us. Tim, what is our special guest? Who is our special guest? <laughs> I was going to say, what is our special guest name? But then I stopped. So let me just rephrase that to who is our special guest? Our, our, our Harry. Oh, my God. His name is Harry. Our special guest <laughs> is... <laughs> We're really good at this. Can you tell? <laughs> our special guest is Harry J. Perales. And he is joining us from the Unauthorized Cinnamon Podcast. In that podcast is a Deadwood podcast. A podcast all about Deadwood. The TV show, not like... You can't get your dick up or anything. Indeed. All right. So, and uh, what are you guys going to be covering? The Halloween movie franchise. We're going to be doing, uh, the first episode is going to cover the first four of the original series, I guess. And then the second episode is going to be the final four of the the series. And then the third episode is going to cover the Rob Zombie remakes. I do hope you don't mind. Not at all. What is it? Tisana. It's Italian. Tea infusions made from these herbs. Here. Try. Try. It's, um, disgusting. (laughs) It's good for you. It's good for the health. Mm. Yeehaw. So you'll uh, be able to look forward to that. And then when we come back uh, for episode 250, that'll be our Halloween episode. And we will be covering classic horror films along the likes of The Dark Horse. I'm sorry, The Old Dark Horse from 1932, Night of the Demon from 1957, and The Innocents from 1961. So you've got a whole lot of horror to look forward to over the next few weeks so without further ado i guess now we get to go do our copycat throwdown and let's do it it's it's 
The The Copy Copy Cat Cat Throwdown Throwdown That's right, it's the Copycat Throwdown Well, that's right, it's the Copycat Throwdown Stop it Stop it No, no, seriously, stop it Oh, right, like, stop repeating? Stop repeating, right Oh, okay I'm gonna kick your ass all right, so we are doing 1952's My Cousin Rachel versus 2017's My Cousin Rachel. Alive with all the impassioned suspense, dramatic fervor, and excitement of the bestseller by Daphne du Maurier, author of Rebecca, My Cousin Rachel comes to the screen with the only star in the world who could play it, Olivia de Havilland. And you'll thrill to the discovery of a bright new star, Richard Burton as Philip Ashley, who fell headlong into Rachel's spell. Philip, how can you be so blind? How can you let yourself be torn and humiliated? Because I love her, don't you understand? Because I love her and nothing else. Because it isn't a little love and it isn't a fancy and it isn't a matter to be turned on and off. It's everything I think and feel and want to know and there's no room in me for anything else and ever will be again. Was she woman or witch? Madonna or murderess? Whose kisses fired his heart with a burning desire to have her? yet poisoned his mind with a suspicion that would not be stilled. Why did you ask me here? To accuse you. Of what? Perhaps of breaking his heart, which would be murder, wouldn't it? If that was what you wanted, watch me. Watch me now. You remember once I told you there was nothing else I needed but the warmth and comfort of these four walls? I remember. I was wrong. I know now that there's something else. Are you very sure of that? More sure than of anything else on Earth. I haven't the time to explain. But I'm convinced now that Ambrose is right. She not only murdered him, but she's done her best to kill me, too. Philip, you can't be there. Every word you uttered in the church that afternoon was the truth. And with that letter, I'm positive I can prove it. But not murder, surely. How else could she marry her lover and still keep possession of the estate? My cousin Rachel. Of her, they said, a woman to love but not to marry. My cousin Rachel. Of her, they said, she gives men a promise of ecstasy and a life of torment. And honestly, all right, so with the 1952 version, um, they definitely pull this into a straight um mystery film they they really do posit this as heavier on the mystery side uh with the romance in there whereas you have kind of a romantic drama out of the 2017 version this one of course uh from 1952 is uh directed by henry coster it stars olivia de holland richard burton audrey dalton ronald squire george dolans and john sutton and again still based on the novel uh one thing that is very that is um that that is a very good thing about these two movies is they really do maintain the identity and the themes of the source material there's nothing uh there's no major plot points changed there's no um you know casting differences or anything like that you've pretty much got all the main characters that take place in the book are relevant in the in both films and the story is as such so <clears throat> Here's my problem, and just to kind of get into this a little bit more, the story, here's what I say, why I say the story is flawed, and, and Tim kind of touched on this in his review. The movies, just like the book, are trying to be thought-provoking, okay? And the movie is left with an ambiguous ending. You do not ever find out, nor do you have the information to to garner whether or not Rachel is actually someone who was trying to kill off the people that, you know, she's, is she seducing people and then taking their money after killing them? Um, you never get that. All you get is just this poor, you know, Philip, it, you know, loves Rachel and Rachel dies. That That's all you get out of all three of the stories from the novel to the 52 version to the 2017 version. Um, and the thing is, and this is what I was telling um, Tim when we were doing the pre-show, I have I have a huge problem with ambiguity just for the sake of ambiguity. 
if you're going to have something that's in an ambiguous ending, you've got to leave enough clues along the way so that people can make an inference. They can figure out for themselves what they think happened. You can have that thought-provoking stuff, things that spur discussion. Inception is a great example of that. You know, um, did Leonardo DiCaprio's character, did he find his way back to his kids or not? Um, do you think that the top wavered right before the shot cut to, you know, cut to black? And even if it did waver, did it waver just because it was wavering or did it waver because it was about to collapse because it wasn't, um, you know, a true totem? Now, here, you're literally just, they can't find anything to confirm whether or not she is, and then, she dies and he's like oh but i love you oh um and so all you have left is really the strength of the acting and again i i enjoyed and and don't get me wrong my cousin rachel the 1950s it's not bad it, it is not bad it is definitely of its day um and i think for me that's kind of what hurt it more i felt like the acting in the 2017 version uh was more understated and worked with the way that the story was meant to be told whereas in 1952 the acting is also good but because it's of its time period it feels a little bit ham-fisted and i don't mean and and again you're not going to sit there and go oh geez are you kidding me but it does feel like borderline overacting and it made it it made it that much harder to enjoy um, wait, wait, I wait. Was that the older one or the newer one you're saying? The older one. The really? One. So you yes. thought the older one had more overacting than the than the yes. remake? Interesting. Yes. I do believe that. I, I, I do believe that. Uh, and, and it's like one of the scenes where, was it Philip? I guess it's, yeah, it's Philip. And he's like, I never have, I won't have, I won't have again, and never will be. And I'm like, okay, Jimmy Stewart, calm down. This isn't, you know, it's a wonderful life. Um, you know, it's, it's things like that. Look, it's not that it's poorly done. It's, it is of its time. It is meaningfully delivered. It's just, it comes on a little too strong. You got a nice roll. You're putting a little too much butter on it is, is all I'm getting at. That doesn't mean that the film is terrible. It doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, it, it doesn't make it worse. But I feel that mainly because it comes on so strong in the 52 version as opposed to the 2017 version, the 2017 version was uh, the easier one to watch overall. Um, if, I mean, we're talking about a 3 versus a 3.25. I like them both. Um, but again, that story just gets to me because I don't dig the ambiguous ending where you have no conclusion to draw from it. Um, and which is interesting because uh, Daphne du Maurier wrote uh, Rebecca, which was actually turned into a 1940 Alfred Hitchcock film starring Laurence Olivier. And oh my God, that's my favorite Alfred Alfred Hitchcock movie. So I I mean I I know that Daphne du Maurier can write great books that got turned into cinema, you know, great cinema. So at the end of the day. I am definitely going to land on uh, my cousin Rachel 2017 version over 1952. And judging by the remarks given with the, really? Oh, is that so? I'm going to go with the fact that Tim, I don't think, agrees with me. <laughs> no, no, but like, no. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. I, Lay it on me, brother. What do you got? Yeah, no. I. So, I mean, I, I like the remake but i think well i haven't read the book but after doing a little bit of research the 1952 version does in fact follow the book a little bit more at least what uh, what the author was trying to accomplish i guess especially with the ending um the, i think the 52 version does do better or does do does a better job unlike the remake the focus is shared a bit more and I think more of the development happens with Rachel as a character because, like I mentioned, at the very beginning of the remake, 
Philip comes out of the gate hot. You know, he's just pissed off. I mean, not like right when the movie begins, but how the movie is shot with the camera moving around and all these quick cuts and it's going through time. And purposefully, the movie is shot that way to invoke immediacy. And unlike the 2017 uh, remake, with the 1952 version, the filmmakers, they focus more on the story and the characters. What they accomplish technically on the screen is just all that the movie really needed. As mentioned, there's too much camera movement used in the remake. And with that movement, it just seemed like the director had the camera moving during every single shot to establish a sense of immediacy, like I mentioned, and a buildup to the title card. Because that's what it does, where, you know, you watch the original film and... It takes a nice little 10 minutes where you, you meet the characters, Richard Burton. The character of Philip is the narrator. Richard Burton is calm, cool, and collected. He's talking about his father. He's just kind of talking about how, in a way, you get the idea of pride and how, how lucky he is for being adopted into this family, I guess, and how much he looks up to Ambrose and all this stuff. And I believe Ambrose's wife, she died young of some kind of strange illness. Uh, and, and so once you figure that out. And once Ambrose passes away, you then get the sense of, okay, this guy, Philip, has gone through a lot. Not only does, you know, not only was he an, 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 an adopted child, but his stepmother died of, some, of whatever illness or however at a young age, and now his stepfather died. You know, and now he's inheriting this estate, and he's the one that has to run it. So you get the idea where you, where you feel sad for him, and you immediately think, at least I immediately thought, okay, well, his revenge is justified. He was given all the material that proves that Rachel probably killed his dad or drove his, his stepfather to death. To me, that makes sense. You know, he's going to go over there, he's going he's gonna to seek revenge in some form or fashion and confront her about it. And then he meets her, and then just something clicks. And very much like the 2017 remake, the 1952 version, there's not really a lot there in terms of why he clicks so soon, but I think because how downplayed the movie is in general, it it didn't bother me as much. I was able to work past it, not only because of, of, of how the movie itself is, is downplayed a little bit, like in all the departments, especially the technical department, it's also an older movie, and I've seen a number of older movies to know that, you know, that's kind of how they handled things like that, was just to, you know, move on to the next emotion, the next thing, but what's great about Richard Burton, inside of him, he had this way, Richard Burton had this way of portraying the character of Philip with great inner power and isn't overdramatic from the very start. But I will say this during the, the reveal, and I, I apologize, Matt, if you already mentioned this or not. So everything is building up. You're pretty much told by Philip that Rachel killed his stepfather. And like I mentioned with the remake, he's a little bitchy and just kind of angry. And you really don't, at least I don't really feel bad for that guy. And I'm talking about, again, Claflin's portrayal of Philip. Because how angry he gets and how over-the-top he plays the character, when you're asked, is Rachel duplicitous, you kind of question that. Again, thinking that maybe it's not she who is duplicitous, but maybe it's him. Because outside of what Philip says about her, about Rachel, you don't ever really get the feeling that she truly is duplicitous. I mean, this could be because from the very start, Philip is played over the top and the audience is never really on his side. I don't know. I mean, but in fact, I, I actually felt sorrier for Philip because I, I was sorrier for Philip and still am sorry for Philip. I am under the impression that he was suffering from a mental crisis of some sort. And all that, I thought, was triggered by the death of the stepfather and the, the death of the stepmother, which is never really explored too much. But I know in the book it's explored, and it is mentioned at least in the 1952 movie. But even though I thought overall Richard Burton did a better job, I thought Claflin had more of an emotional impact during the ending. I genuinely felt bad for him because he actually came across as devastated and utterly lost. Matt, I don't know if you mentioned this or not, but throughout the movie, Rachel provides him with this tea, a special brew, his special brew, and every time he drinks it, he goes into this weird dreamlike trance state 
where it just seems mm-hmm. like he's either getting sick or he is getting sicker, but then all of a sudden he's fine. And then the one time he decides not to drink it, he already looks fine, but he decides to do a little bit of, a bit of investigating and look for particular documents that would be incriminating within her personal belongings. So in the remake, he basically tells her, um, go on a, or she's going to go out on a horseback ride and she's trying to get uh, him to come with her him and this other woman to come with her. And he's like, no, 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 we're, we're, we're going to, I'm going to show uh, Louise something and we're going to discuss something. Why, you go by yourself and go ride, go, go on the cliff ride, go right on the edge of the cliff. Well, what happened earlier on the movie, when Philip was on horseback going out for a ride, he was riding on the same ledge of that cliff and suddenly poor CGI strikes and the cliff falls apart and he almost dies along with his horse. So he knows that that cliff is prone to cliff slides or rock slides or whatever. So he sends her off there and not only to send her to her death, uh, that could have been not intentionally, but maybe subconsciously he did that because, aha, there might be something wrong with him. Uh, but he wants to use that time to go into her room to find this incriminating evidence. So of course he goes up there and throws everything around and doesn't find anything at all. And then he quickly realizes that he made a horrible mistake. Well, by the time he gets to that cliffside, you know, she is dead. Very much the same thing happens in the 1952 uh, version as well. Instead of a very dramatic cliff fall, it's a bridge. She falls down a bridge, an unstable bridge or, or something like that. And she dramatically dies in his arms, which of course is melodramatic. But Matt, I, I, I want to ask you though, what do you think about some of the other characters in the movie? Like, do you have the supporting cast? Uh, me personally, I thought in the remake, I thought the supporting cast was better. Like whenever he was under the spell of Rachel or whatever it was, and he went to his godfather who is in charge of the family's estate, wanting to sign over a portion of the state and the portion of the family money to Rachel, he was the one that said, are you sure you want to do this? Do you want to do, you know, what do you think about those guys? Do you think it was a little too much in the remake or do you think um, it was underdeveloped in the 52 version or? Honestly, I I guess, I mean, I, I guess I can see where you're coming from, but for me, I think the reason you, okay. You, you like the, the 52 supporting cast better. No, I so like the remake kind of, better. Remake. Okay. Yeah. I think, yeah, all right, that makes sense. I think that the reason for that is because, as you noted, that the 52 version was uh, a little bit closer to the book than the 2017 version. Um, though, again, I mean, it's not so drastically different. Like, you're like, oh, my gosh, what the hell are they doing? Um, and I think that is because of those changes that they made. There really isn't anything other... Uh, any anything more for the supporting cast to do other than just kind of be there as incidental plot devices or something to uh, bounce ideas off for the characters to do in the 52 version because again they are heavily 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 focusing on um, the mystery side as much as they are heavily focusing on the romance side and so you have to have something for the 52 people to do and all they can do is really just kind of give you the you know plug away at the mystery in the 2017 version they're making it less of a mystery and more drama which means they have to be stronger because the romance is going to stand on its own and that that strength really just comes from the fact that they took the mystery out of it uh and just kind of left well i mean the the mystery nature of the film and turn that aspect into the more dramatic side of the story. So it I I mean but for me I I didn't really have that preference. But I mean it does make sense that you would say that um the 2017 version did better for you. What did you think of Rachel Wise or Vice as Rachel? Um Okay, I know I said that I like the acting overall in the 2017 version, but I thought that um, Olivia de Holland did uh, de Havilland did ha- de- <laughs> Olivia de Havilland did be- did the better job. Although really? um, Ra- Rachel Weisz, I mean, she's a great actress. She is a really, really great actress. So I was quite happy with her portrayal of Ooh. Rachel. 
let's go into more detail on this because I'm curious because I I'm a I, I'm more on Rachel Weisz's portrayal. I'm just curiosity why uh, why Olivia de Havilland. Like, what does she um, do? Like, was it more like of a nuance type of thing, or you think she she pulled it off better based on what that a, story I mean, was trying to, or what I, that movie was trying to achieve? I don't think it's a, a I don't think it's a nuance aspect of it. Um, I mean, uh, Vice's version has to be n- more nuanced because um, they're like I was pointing out, toning down the character behavior. Um, I, I really liked the, I, I liked the overall characterization, uh, and the way that it caused, uh, the Hav- Havilland to, to physically carry herself as someone who could be exactly nonchalant enough when she needed to be versus someone who would be, you know, um, calculating. And yet at the same time, it's hard to see where that calculation is. That is what I liked more. And I mean, I guess if you want to call that nuance, fine, but I, I really don't think that the, that it's the nuance because the nuance would just be in the, in the movements and the subtleties and the delivery of the line. But it's just the way she commands the scene that she's in. Um, where, where Vice kind of uses um, she kind of uses the dialogue just to kind of create the static enigma, and it she does really well. I mean, I'm I mean I don't say that she's you know that she does that she doesn't do that she doesn't do it well. Um, it just kind of seems to be something that you would expect out of a portrayal in this manner. So maybe it just. To me, it feels more natural coming from De Havilland than it did from Vice, but they both do a great job. Interesting. This is fascinating. This is a fascinating, fascinating copycat throw. I'm more intrigued than than anything else. Like, because <laughs> I mean, because okay. it, it, no, no, it's 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 interesting. I, I find it interesting because like I liked how, um, especially two examples, one from each movie, as to why I like these movies separately, I guess, or what makes these two movies unique, but one maybe uh, probably a little more, a lot better, I guess. Uh, one scene in particular that I really liked in the remake is when you initially meet Rachel Vise's Rachel. And I liked how she commanded the house upon arrival. When Philip goes out, he's out drinking. He's ba- he basically tells his Butler or, you know, whoever the house servant or, you know, whatever the hell he is to, Keep her waiting. Don't feed her. I want her to. I, I don't want her to eat until I arrive. I'm going to be late. I want her just to wait. Make make her as uncomfortable as possible. I, I think he was expecting her to be completely opposite than what than than what she turned out to be. But and how she commands the scene, it's in a way to where it, it seemed like she found everything all too familiar, whether it be the space or whether it be the situation. So it was just interesting for the audience, at least for me to watch, because to me, that was such an interesting little touch because she's quiet, she's courteous, she's very nice. And given all the information you think you know about her, you, call, you, you, know, you can't help but to call that bullshit. And with that, that idea of bullshit in the back of your head, everything you watch her do adds to it. A little bit more and you think you're honor and then you know and then the ending happens and it's very ambiguous i i really like that about her because she pulled it off very interesting like whenever they're whenever he's screwing her out in the forest kind of at the end right when the shit's about to hit the fan i not really shit's about to hit the fan but right after he turned everything over to her you know the night before he owns the estate at midnight on his 25th birthday. So he takes out all the jewels, the family jewels and jewelry and pearls and all this, whatever. And he shows up, he climbs up the side of the house to her bedroom, goes in there and throws this box of jewelry all over her bed and just throws it and he goes, there you go. That's it. He's, he's very forceful and kind of in her face. And, you know, she's so happy. And I, and they, I think they screw or something like that. And, you know, then the next day she goes into town to check on the contract to make sure she completely understood what it said. 
And so automatically you think, oh, she, and also she's wearing her veil. Oh, something fishy is going on. She's up to something. And then they go on the walk and he's drunk and he's forcing himself onto her, but she's just kind of taking it and looking off to the side. And then again, you're like, huh, fishy. Maybe, possibly, she is up to no good. I had my doubts a little while ago, but maybe she is. And the rest of the movie is history. In a way, the ambiguousness just kind of falls apart, and you begin doubting yourself as an audience member. But then in the 1952 version, that same scene, whenever Philip turns 25, climbs up the side of the house, he takes the time to, I guess in a gesture, to show his commitment towards Rachel Philip, instead of throwing all the jewelry onto Rachel's bed, he affectionately, like, dresses Rachel with each piece of jewelry while he's talking to her. And not only does the audience see this loving side of Philip, but so does Rachel. And then you get the sense that maybe she's either growing in love with Philip or she's obligated to appreciate him. Okay, that's it right there. That that is what exactly what I'm talking about, okay. And I apologize for, no, it's fine. but That's this great. is this is exactly what I meant when I said uh, in the 52 version, uh, the Holovan or the Haviland um, is y- you are sitting there watching her being as calculating as she needs to be, and and that's what makes her portrayal for me so much better because when they go to the uh, profession of love scene and she's like what the fuck are you talking about right Mm -hmm. it comes off as such a hugely stark contrast to what you just saw before and then when she then turns around and plays it off in the next scene is hang on we didn't make that kind of a promise the promise wasn't marriage that is not what I agreed to. And, you know, and, and I mean, think about what you did and how that would affect a girl, you know, and make her, make her feel. It's, um, it, it, it's the preciseness. It's that calculation. It's exactly what it, she needs to be at the moment that she needs to be it. And then you contrast that with the way Vice did it. Okay. And then she just turns around and she's like, are you mad? It, it just, in her case, it literally, because of the way that the movie plays out and subsequently goes beyond, it just seems like it's a natural progression of her character. It just seems like, well, this is kind of where the character is going. So, well, sure, she would do it that way. And yet it's just much more precise when the, when the Holovan does it. And that, that contrasting of that scene, of those scenes where Philip is, you know, saying, Hey, we're, we're going to get married. It's the reactions beyond that, beyond what had happened just before. And it even comes in even clearer when, uh, Vice is doing it because Vice is just like, look, I'm not sorry we had sex, but, you know, because she's somehow so, liberated in this particular time period when it's you know not fashionable to be so um but you know i mean i i i I get it i'm i'm thankful i appreciate what you did but that's you know there's your welcome you know um and it just seems to be the natural progression of where vice's characterization is going versus the literal exactness with which uh, Dolivand is portraying Rachel. So yeah. that's, and that's why I like, uh, Olivia's version more. And my ultimate reason why I enjoyed or like the older version more so is because I think the remake failed to plant the seeds of doubt as to who to trust and who not to trust. And the original version does it so well in the smallest, littlest of ways in gestures Not only is it the progression of Philip deteriorating and then Rachel coming out on top, but it's also her, her part. It's the character that I'm thinking of is in the remake, but it's a different character in the, in the, um, in the, in the fifties version. Um, 
the character in the 2017 version is named uh it's it's the Enrico Rinaldi the Greek guy who Philip thinks that that's her lover or something but he, it turns out he's she, he's just a good friend and um that he's gay so whenever he sees the two of them kissing it's just I guess they're greeting one another and there's really nothing more to it well his character in the 50s version has this very interesting interaction with Philip after they become smitten one of the first things that then makes Philip re-question things again. This is after he becomes smitten with Rachel. That guy basically says, "Oh, it's interesting how there were how there were two wills." And then Philip goes, two wills? What I do say, sir? How, what do we talk about? Two wills? I was not informed of two wills." And he's like, "Oh yeah, there were two wills. The one that you signed and the one that was ultimately put through. The estate was given to you." The second will that Ambrose wrote up, the entire state was going to go to Rachel. I feel absolutely positive in saying that if it was the other will that went through, the second will that went through, Rachel would do the same for you. And I actually felt like that was genuine in a way. Like there's no misdirection and misguiding for the sake of misdirection and for the sake of misguiding. And earlier... Many, 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 many minutes earlier, I mentioned that in the older version, they focus more on the characters and storytelling and not on the technical aspect. And therefore, more stuff like that, at least in my mind, became more noticed. That is why I think My Cousin Rachel 1952 is better than My Cousin Rachel 2017. (laughs) All right, and when we... Uh, make our triumphant return in time for Halloween. We'll uh, surprise you with what our bonus segment will be. And I believe that does bring us to the spiel, does it not, sir? It does. But actually, I just thought of this. Gothic Mm -hmm. love stories. We had another one that came out a couple years ago. Guillermo del Toro's uh, (laughs) Crimson (laughs) Crimson Stink. The red red crimson uh, stink. Sure, sure. Do you think... These gothic, these obvious gothic horror movies, they belong in black and white. There's something that you can't quite reproduce when it's in color. And sometimes it seems like directors feel like they have to play around with the color, I guess. No, I I do not think that. And I think that this is actually a case um, where they did the gothic style right uh, in terms of uh, My Cousin Rachel 2017 version. Because you got the earnestness, you earnestness, and then you also got the feel and the look still in color. That was fine, um, but it didn't come across as something um, as poorly put together and as poorly overacted as uh, Crimson Peak was, and. All you have to do is go back and listen to those reviews and you can immediately tell the difference just in tone and style. Um, and as much as I kind of harped on, I, I didn't like the ending and because the story itself isn't that strong for this, um, it's still a much better story than Crimson Peak was. So. Spiel on. Is there something wrong with the food? No, the food was excellent. Perhaps you're not happy with the service? No, no, no complaints. It's just that we have to go. I'm having rather a heavy period. And we have a train to catch. Oh, Oh, yes, yes, of course, we have a train to catch. And I don't want to start bleeding all over the seats. Well, the music you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher radio as well as track us down on the old soundcloud so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to olivia de havilland i get to say this 
Famous people feel that they must perpetually be on the crest of the wave, not realizing that it is against all the rules of life. You can't be on top all the time. It isn't natural. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, farewell, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>